Ecclesiastes 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We are plugging along here. We've only got two, well, three if you include 10, but we're getting getting closer to the end of Ecclesiastes, and now we're coming to chapter 10. I'm going to go down through verse number 15 for today, and um, we'll look at uh, this passage of Scripture. Uh, the title of the message is Fools and Their Folly. Fools and Their Folly. And that is definitely the focus of this passage that Solomon uh, points our attention to. And so let's read our text together. Solomon writes here, he says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error, proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of words, if the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Now, how many of us have ever done something that was foolish? Well, we've got a wise bunch here today. Never done anything foolish. I know that that includes all of us, right? It's part of life. Part of growing in life is learning from foolish things we may have done or said. And everyone has been foolish at some point, even if they realize it or not. How should we view those who make foolish mistakes? You know, Mr. T used to say years ago, he had a coin saying. You know what it said? I pity the fool, right? And uh, that's common. It's attributed to him. And it was really a way of him expressing a proud form of empathy towards the one he's going to beat up on, especially in the movie Rocky III. Rocky was going up against him, and he said, I pity the fool. You know, I pity going to him going up against me. Uh, we may have some pity for someone who does something foolish and has learned from it, but there's a great difference from between making a foolish mistake and being a fool continually in their, by doing foolish things. Now, we're going to read a lot of Proverbs. There's a lot of Proverbs that we'll read reference here tonight because that's really what ties in the lesson together with Ecclesiastes. But Proverbs 26.11 says this, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Isn't that some great imagery? But that's the reality. Repetition is exceedingly foolish when it comes to these sorts of things. So what does it mean to be a fool? A fool, by definition, is a person who acts unwisely. And so this has, one of been, this has been one of the main contrasts Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, as Solomon has been evaluating life under the sun, he gives us some good contrast between wisdom and foolishness, the wise and the unwise. 
And so what we find with the foolish people is that they commit folly. And folly is just another one of those words that refers to foolish or foolishness. It's an adjective that means lacking good sense or judgment, silly, unwise. And so the world is full of foolish people. Not just people who make foolish mistakes, but people who live in perpetual foolishness. Solomon has observed that truth over and over again. And perhaps you have observed that truth over and over again. Now, there's two kinds of wisdom that's been being communicated by Solomon through this book as we've read through it. He gives some plain wisdom that is basically uh, describing observations he's seen or maybe uh, things he's learned from his own experience, right? They're more detailed, drawn out. But then there's also proverbial wisdom, which is what we see in our text today. These would be short, tactful statements that communicate a truth in a very poetic manner. That's what Proverbs are. And so when we look at this passage, it's mostly proverbial wisdom. But this passage focuses really on the negative. You can glean the positive, but the focus is the impact of the negative, which is that of being foolish and what happens with foolish ramifications. So what do we learn here? Just one heading tonight, and I want to break this down into a few things, just principles that we learn from this passage. You see the dangers of foolishness, the dangers of foolishness. And we're going to look at these as we come through the text. Number one, the first thing we'll find is that a little folly spoils great good. A little folly spoils great good. And we see this in verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now, he began this passage of wisdom. It connects through the last few verses of the last chapter. But now he comes into this. He, he showed us how wisdom is better than strength. It's better than weapons of war. And wisdom is what we need. But he says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Isn't that a great way to start a chapter? Dead flies and a stench. That's real appealing, right? But this is all part of his point here. He's going to make. In ancient times, people would mix certain elements to make perfume or an aroma for embalming, but also for wearing, right? And so there's several elements that went into these perfumes and these uh, ointments. And dead flies were not in the recipe. They don't belong there, right? Because of what they, they do here in this text. They give off a stench. They ruin the mixture. And so what he's saying here is, okay, as you look at this, though these dead flies are small and maybe seemingly insignificant to some, they have a great effect on the overall, the overall aroma of this perfume or, or this cologne or this embalmment. Uh, ointment. And so what, notice what he says here. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Notice that it's a little folly, just like dead flies are just little things. He says a little folly brings a great stench to a person who otherwise maybe had wisdom and honor. He says that it outweighs wisdom and honor. So the proverb really is underlining the fragrance of the wise man's character which is, image, which is seen in imagery by the, you know, by the fume. And yet only a small mistake can make the smell of his folly greater than the fragrance of his wisdom. Now we think about this and by way of application and just how soon and how easily ruin can be brought to a person's life 
by an impulsive or foolish decision. Now, these can come from both the irresponsible person and even those who are faithful people. Consider Esau for a moment. Esau, I would consider quite irresponsible. Esau, in his foolish impulses, we read and see throughout his, throughout his life, he impulsively gave away his birthright, something that was very valuable and highly honored in that day, to Jacob because he was hungry. And there was stew right in front of him. And he says, man, I tell you what, I'm so hungry I'm about to die, so I'm just going to give this up. What's it worth to me if I die? He was impulsive and foolish in that decision. It showed forth foolishness in him. We think of Jacob's sons who, concerning his name, they went and deceived and killed a town of people who had defiled his sister. But Jacob was concerned about their actions because it was impulsive and unwise the way they went about it. He says in Genesis 34, 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me distinct among the inhabitants of the land. Impulsive reactions. Then we think about someone who maybe was faithful that had an impulsive reaction that is a mark on him, right? Consider Moses. He wasn't an irresponsible man, but he was a faithful, committed man, well-respected man, still is today, but yet in an impulse of anger, he struck the rock, and by that sin, that impulse, foolish decision, he was restricted from entering the promised land. Here's the reality. That can happen to any one of us. Whether you maybe think you're responsible or you're irresponsible, we're not above having something foolish happen to us in our life because of our actions. Now, we think that in modern-day examples, a person may give up their purity, something so valuable, for a momentary pleasure. Happens all the time. A person may give up a long-built reputation for a drunken night of partying, something so fleeting. A person may give up their honor and respect among others from one outburst of anger and rage. Impulsive, foolish decisions, though it may be small in the moment, like the dead fly, can bring great damage to reputation and the, the, to a person's life. You see, through our life, we should be building up good character, good reputation. Solomon said in Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. But there is the danger to all of us that we can tear down what we've built up by a very small thing, by a very momentary thing. Derek Kidner rightly comments here and says, it takes far less to ruin something than to create it. And that's a great principle for us to keep in mind. So we need to take this proverb to heart. We need to be on guard against the little folly that may cause a great stink to us in our life. But notice also, letter B, that following folly leads to dishonor and trouble. Following folly leads to dishonor and trouble. And then we see a contrast between the heart of a wise man and the heart of a foolish man. In verse 2, Solomon says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, in that day and time, and even still today in some ways, probably in some cultures, the right, right hand or the right direction, it's associated with strength and uh, honor, something that saves and supports and protects, as some may say. We see this referenced in various ways through Scripture. You'll notice the right hand is always one of favor and blessing. Psalm 16, 8, he says, David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. 
There's the indication of the right hand. This signifies honor and authority. Where is Jesus seated? At the right hand or the left hand of the Father? The right hand, right? So you see that imagery there. Colossians 3.1 If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So the opposite of the right is the left. And the left signifies weakness, dishonor, calamity, and even wickedness if it's in the right context. So the right as opposed to the left is a common contrast in the Scriptures. We look at the final judgment. When Jesus teaches about gathering the nations, the sheep and the goats, we see this imagery again. Matthew 25, 32 through 33, look at this. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So there you have it again, the right and the left. So when it comes to this, we definitely want to be on the right, don't we? We don't want to be on that left side. And we know that those on the right, those are his sheep. They're going to enter into his eternal kingdom. Those on the left are the goats. They'll enter into eternal judgment. But here's what we see with this. The contrast of right and left in Solomon's words, it's not an exact description of good versus evil, although it can be. Most Christians know the difference between good and evil. And even many unregenerate people know there's a difference between good and evil. There is such a thing as morality among the world. We know certain things are morally wrong and morally right, but this venture here into foolishness, it's not limited to just right and wrong in the sense of sin and righteousness. One can make a foolish decision that's not necessarily sinful. One can make a right decision that's not a wise decision that's not necessarily righteous. For example, one may spend their money on something that isn't necessarily sinful but isn't wise either. You shouldn't buy a car or a home if you can't afford it. It would be unwise, Right? One may have a friendship that isn't necessarily sinful to be a friend to them, but it may not be wise either to hang out with that person because of the influence they may be upon you. One may follow advice that isn't sinful but isn't wise either, like being dared to jump into a lake off a high place. might be a thrill, but it's probably not the wisest thing to do. You see, many choices in life are not necessarily a choice between good and evil. Many choices are a difference between wisdom and folly. And they certainly can be intertwined, but they're not always intertwined. Now, one thing's for sure that we learn from this text. Notice what it says. A wise man's heart inclines him to where? To the right, not to the left. So when wisdom is the guide of a person's heart, the direction is towards the right, that which is honorable, that which is beneficial, and of course, godly from Scripture. You see, true wisdom has a fear of God as its foundation, which affects the rest of the direction of a person. I think a good example of this would be Ruth. Ruth had a choice of two directions, didn't she? She could have gone back to her people and to her pagan gods. But in wisdom, what did she choose? She said to Naomi, your God will be my God, your people my people. She chose the true God and, the true, and she became part of God's true people. So what you find in the opposite side of this is the fool's heart takes him to the left, the direction that is not grounded in the fear of God or what is good and right and wise and honorable. I think a good example of that would be a man named Lot. 
Lot also had a choice in two directions he could go, didn't he? Abram gave him the choice. And what did Lot choose? He chose to pitch his tent towards Sodom because the grass was greener that way, right? It was a foolish direction he took as we find he continued to go further in that direction. Not only was he near Sodom, we find later he's in Sodom. And so little by little, he's making the foolish decision to go left, to go the wrong direction. You see, the dangers of foolishness, they're, they're usually not immediately seen, and that's part of the problem. The dangers of foolishness are not immediately seen for reasons plain to us in Scripture. What Solomon say earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes, he said in chapter 2 and verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. See, wisdom gives clarity to seeing what the ramifications are going to be. What's the outcome? If I take this decision, I make this direction, where is this going to lead me? The fool is blind, and he's not seeing and realizing what he's doing. He just continues on doing this same thing. And so the fool inclines to what is less valuable, less good, uh, less wise, less beneficial, and even can be positively wrong and sinful in that direction. So this is truly where we must examine our own selves in our life. What direction are we going? Are we gravitating in the way of wisdom towards the right or the way of foolishness towards the left? Do we, meet, do we move toward temptation or away from evil? Do we move forward in our discipleship and growth in the Lord, or are we stalled and stagnant in our spiritual life? Do we seek what is wise, or do we just do whatever we feel like, regardless of what the outcome may be? That really is what foolishness all boils down to. It's impulsive. It does whatever the flesh wants in a given moment. Notice he continues this line of thought in verse 3. He says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and says to everyone that he is a fool. So basically, even when it seems that a person may be wise, he's walking on the road, they reveal their foolishness by their speech, by their talk. After all, one of the only ways really you can hide your foolishness is to keep quiet, Scripture says, right? Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. But the nature of a fool is that he can't help but speak. And so, therefore, he still reveals it, right? He reveals it. Thus, Solomon says, he says to everyone that he's a fool. Now, that doesn't mean that the fool is saying, hey, everybody, I'm a fool. No, it's just picked up on how he talks, how he speaks, what he's saying. His words reveal his foolishness. And this aspect is going to come up again later in this passage, so I'll, I'll share a little bit more about that in a moment. But the overall point here that Solomon is making is that wisdom leads to what is right and honorable, wise. Foolishness leads to what is dishonorable and bad for a person in their life and even sinful. Letter C, fools fail to be calm in heated situations. Fools fail to be calm in heated situations. Now, Whenever there is a heated situation, when anger and rage are flowing out like water, what is the natural tendency of a person in response to that kind of thing? Our natural tendency is to respond in the same way, to fight fire with fire. Well, guess what happens when you fight fire with fire? You only spread the fire. <laughs> nothing gets put out. Nothing gets solved. Verse 4. 
If the anger of the of ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So in this scenario, Solomon's bringing us back into the courtroom of a ruler, much like he did back in chapter 8, verse 2 through 5. And when an authoritative person over you is angered at a subordinate, which may be you, this can be a very vulnerable position to be in. How the person under their authority responds says a lot about them regarding wisdom and foolishness, and it will also affect the outcome of what happens next. Now, one illustration I'll kind of bring up, there's probably several, but playing high school basketball, there was always occasions where the high school coach, who is the authority over the players, right, there would be times he'd get quite angry at a particular player for doing something specific. Maybe the player just disobeyed a direct order from him in the game, or did something absolutely foolish. He knew he shouldn't have done. He just knew better, right? And so you get in the locker room, and the coach comes in, and you can tell he's mad. <laughs> he's mad. And everybody in the locker room knows who he's mad at. And so the coach begins to lay into this dude. And everybody on the team is focused in on the coach and the player. And we're looking. We know he's mad, but how's the player going to respond? And we're usually worried about how the player is going to respond because if the player responds negatively, that might impact the whole team. This dude costs you all 20 laps, get out there and run. That's usually how it went. So there would be times when some players would take it, be calm and quiet, recognize their error, and say, okay, coach, I'll do it right the next time. But then I also saw some teammates who would get mad, give the, to give the coach a piece of their mind, and some even stormed out of the locker room. And I thought, man, we're going to feel it tomorrow. This is what's happening. That was the wrong kind of approach. Now, this applies to many categories of life. It might apply to your home in relation to your spouse and your children. It might apply to your workplace. You might get called in by your boss and have a good chewing. You're going to have to respond in a certain way. You see, in everything that we experience, you're going to respond with wisdom or foolishness. There's only two options, wisdom or foolishness. And that's what we need is wisdom. And so what we find with Solomon here, what's he warning about? He says in response to this ruler, given the context of that culture, he says, do not leave your place. In other words, don't react rashly or impulsively and storm out. That's a big no-no with regard to the authority in that day and time. Why? Because calmness will lay great fences to rest. In other words, stay there and be calm. Don't react the way he's reacting. If there's an offense that you've committed, you should be calm and recognize your offense anyway. If you haven't caused an offense, and this heated rebuke is a mistake, you still should be calm and seek to give a gentle resolution to it. So the bottom line with this is what? Anger is not the right response to anger. It's not. It ever is. Solomon says in Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So when somebody responds to you harshly, if you respond harshly back, that's only going to ignite it further and further. The best thing to do is be calm. To be calm. Because he previously said this in Ecclesiastes 7, 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now, one, of the, one example I, I thought of with regard to authority and being calm in the midst of it is David in response to Saul. 
How often was Saul angry at David? Tried to kill him. Tried to pin him to the wall with a spear on more than one occasion. David even had the opportunity to get revenge and kill Saul. Twice. Thank you, Vivian. But what David do? He was calm and patient. And he said, how can I put my hand to the Lord's anointed? He respected the position of Saul, even though he was the next anointed king. You see, anger never resolves anger. Calmness and patience go a long way to resolving conflict. And it may be that the authority in anger is truly the fool. But in either case, the Christian should have a wise, patient response. So the distinction here is that the fool is the one who reacts rashly and angrily while the wise are calm. So we've got to ask ourselves about this. How do we react to heated situations? How do we react to heated situations? Say, don't meddle there, preacher. I'm human too. We've got we to gotta check ourselves with this. Seek to have wisdom in the kind of experience with this. Notice letter, letter D. Something else that comes up with foolishness. Foolish authorities damage societies. Foolish authorities damage societies. Now, continuing on the same line of thought with rulers and authorities, he says in verse 5 through 7, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. And here's the error. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. We'll pause there for a moment. You notice the evil that he sees is that it's an error in, on behalf of the ruler who is in charge. Now, how often do we see the error proceeding from the ruler? Regardless of what ruler it may be, don't we see it? It's quite often. Now, no ruler is perfect in his positions or his practices. We must understand that. Every ruler has a measure of foolishness to them. Some just have more foolishness than others do. Now, this certainly is connected, I think, to righteousness and wickedness in a ruler's heart and the principles that he holds to. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people groan. There's a great parallel there. So the greater wickedness, the great wickedness in this position of a ruler, the greater foolishness that negatively impacts society. I think we're a little bit on the receiving of that, end of that right now. When we see society celebrating immorality, promoting violence, punishing righteousness, glorifying those whose ways are evil, we know that folly is of great measure in that position of leadership. But what Solomon observes must be understood in light of the context of his day. Notice he says, he says, folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. What's he mean by that? He's saying that sometimes because of foolish leadership and a ruler, people with the most resource and ability are not used for the good of society, but rather are disregarded. The rich are in the low place, but folly is in the high place. How often do we see that even in our own recent government and administration? People placed in high positions, not because of competence, but because of their gender, gender identity, or their skin color. 
the VP of the United States. One example, only because she's a woman. She has no competence. I think I can confidently say that. Not trying to offend anybody here, but Solomon just said, go to the right, not the left, right? You'll get that later. I'm not trying to get ultra-political. I'm just stating the obvious. But this is the kind of example Solomon sets forth. Folly is placed in high positions, and those who have competence, because that's really the focus, competence, they're just disregarded. They're in a low place. Now, now this spreads, spreads beyond just the political sphere to other areas of society as well, even the workplace. People are hired based on not competence, but other things, just because they want to be inclusive. It's utter foolishness. And guess what that utter foolishness does? It impacts the whole of society. It impacts the rest. You see, fools are not known for competence. They're known for incompetence. And when someone is incompetent, they shouldn't get to do what the competent should be doing. This goes to every level. I mean, we had a mechanic one time at our shop. We had to let him go because he was just straight out incompetent. Late for work. Didn't do jobs right. One day he did an oil change and, and uh, forgot to put the oil cap in on the bottom of the car. You know what happens when you don't put the oil cap in at the bottom of the car? You put all the oil back in the car and he drove it out down the road and the oil spilled out everywhere, right? Huge mess. Huge mess. Fools don't belong in positions of authority or great responsibility because of the damage they incur. Now you look at verse 7. He continues in, in relating to this rulership. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Again, this is a view from the context of Solomon's day and time. In Solomon's day, horses were associated with power and authority and wealth. Not just anybody could have a horse. Many of the horses were brought in from other places. They didn't really have a lot in that region. They were, they were the trappings of the wealthy nobles in antiquity. Slaves would walk alongside the horses. And it's not merely a question of violating order here, but one of creating situations of gross incompetence in demanding situations. The king, who has the responsibility to preserve justice and integrity, he can't do that when incompetence thwarts him at every turn. Now, this does not mean that a slave couldn't have wisdom and be used in a great way. That's not what Solomon's point is making. He's just showing. He's showing the, the incompetence of foolish leadership. Solomon says in another text, Proverbs 19.10, it is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. So the bottom line here is that foolishness in authority tends to mess things up. Mess things up. And I think we see that in various ways today, from workplace to politics to everything in between. Foolishness in leadership messes things up. It, causes, it has an effect on everybody. Letter E, notice this. Folly increases potential injury or failure. Folly increases potential injury or failure. Now, Solomon points out some common practices from the ancient world that could have a hurtful result on the one who did them with folly instead of wisdom. In verse 8 through 11, let's read these. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, 
He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. With each of these examples, what do you see? You see the potential for harm if folly is present. These, they relate to his culture. Some of these things we read of were the livelihoods of people. For example, if you dig a pit and you don't have wisdom around that pit, what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall into it. You don't play around in a pit. Sometimes this example was used regarding someone who had planned evil against someone else, and it happens to them instead. David uses this in Psalm 7, 15 through 16. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he's made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. In other words, you have mischief in mind, beware, it might come back on you. And it's folly, it doesn't work out in the end. Second illustration here, if you bust through a wall without any regard for your surroundings, there might be a snake in that wall that might bite you. Now, this could be an old-time form of demolition, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I do know that this was, a, this was a different, different structure to their buildings and things of that nature. Snakes were common in walls and around such areas. We have a reference in Amos 5.19. Amos wrote, As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, and he went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. So you see just right there, there's, thankfully we've got walls that are uh, sealed off want to worry about any snakes coming in through these walls right we got some spiders but they're they're not near as bad as a snake but you go into a house in this day and time you go lean against the wall you got to watch yourself could be a snake so he's referencing this guy he just busts through a wall sounds like demolition to me and he has no care about what the surroundings are he's not paying attention there's a snake he gets bit look at the third illustration the person who quarries stones is hurt by them. Now, I imagine being in a quarry is a dangerous place. Big rocks, moving them around. If you're foolish and don't have wisdom, you can get hurt. Fourthly, the one who splits logs is endangered by them. I don't split logs a whole lot. I've done it a few times, but I do know that if you swing the axe wrong, if you're not careful, you can hit yourself. Or you might hit the log wrong, and it might pop back and hit you in the head. The closest thing I think I've done is axe throwing. I can tell you, you throw an axe and it hits wrong, it can bounce back and about hit you. There's danger to this. So when you look at this, he gives further illustration that you could miss, you could cut yourself, you could hurt yourself in this scenario. Last week, I pulled out my knife set for gutting and skinning deer, and I noticed there was a little sharpener in there that I never knew was even there. I thought, man, I didn't know I had that thing. So I pulled it out, and I just too quickly picked it up and said, I'm going to start, start sharpening this knife. I was holding it wrong. wasn't paying attention to how it was supposed to be held. Guess what I did? Slipped and cut my finger. It wasn't a huge cut, but my kids thought I was dying. <laughs> you know, to them, if they see any red, Dad's got, Dad needs to go to the hospital. He's hurt. If you don't pay attention, folly, foolishness, you can get hurt. He adds in verse 10 that to sharpen the edge is wise. If the axe is dull... You're only going to exert more effort to get the job done. But wisdom helps one succeed. Wisdom says sharpen the axe and you can get a whole lot more and less effort. A whole lot more chopped up. It also protects you because you're not exerted. But lastly, you notice Solomon points out the charmer. The charmer who is foolish and dealing with the snake. Now, snake charming was a common practice in that day and time. And if you acted a little foolishly around a snake, you're about to charm 
whatever that means, you're going to get bit. Wisdom today would say, get a different profession. <laughs> Don't be a snake charmer. Now, I still watch people do that all the time. I enjoy watching other people, you know, mess with snakes in the wild and stuff. And, uh, but I can tell you, there's many times I've seen them slip up, they've got bit. Watched a guy in India doing that, and he got bit by a king cobra and to go to the hospital immediately. Um, I mean, he's knowledgeable and everything, but the best of us can slip up. You're not careful. Folly endangers a person and hinders success. That's the point here. Foolishness, folly, it endangers a person and limits their success. And lastly, letter F, what is the ultimate proof of whether we are wise or foolish? We find it in our words and our works. Our words and our works reveal either folly or wisdom in us. And we see this in this last little section. Verse 12 through 15, he says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of words, of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. The plain contrast here is between the words of the wise and the words of the fool. The wise man's words win him favor. He has wisdom in how he speaks and what he speaks. But the foolish man's words consume him. You see, the fool can't help to always be talking and never listening. Never listening. Proverbs 18.2 A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. Just because someone talks a lot does not mean they really know a lot. Often the person sitting in quiet listening has the most wisdom in the room. A fool has it all figured out in his mind, yet his folly continues to have a great negative impact on his life. You notice the toil or the works of the fool, they weary him, for he does not know the way to the city. Why doesn't he know the way to the city? Because he don't listen to nobody. Because he doesn't listen, he'd get lost trying to find the second floor if you put him on an escalator. He don't know what he's doing. Well, I think I need to go down. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Man, I wish I had listened to that verse a long, long time ago. Especially in my teenage years when mom and dad didn't know what they were talking about. I did. Me. We're not right in our own eyes. We need to understand that. A wise man listens to advice. Even if that advice may be wrong, still listen. At least weigh it. Weigh it against truth. Weigh it against Scripture. You see, he, by his foolishness, makes things in his life needlessly more difficult for himself. How many of us have seen that over and over in people's lives? They simply make life harder for themselves because they act and live foolishly. They don't listen. They don't seek wisdom. They simply do whatever they feel. Do we want to live wisely or foolishly? Well, how can we live wisely instead of foolishly? Well, firstly, we understand that the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to know Christ because he is wisdom to us. He is wisdom to us. But ultimately, it comes down to practice, too, if we know him. And I'll read just in closing tonight, Matthew 7, verse 
24 through 27. Look, look at this with me. Just the contrast Jesus gives. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You want to live in a wise manner? Follow Jesus. Live according to his word. To not live according to his word is to build your life on sand and ultimately it's going to crumble because a storm is going to hit. Eventually, always. You want to be founded on the rock. The contrast can't be any more plain from Jesus' word. What Jesus says is the foundation, and what Solomon says is just the outflow of some of these things. So as you consider this passage as a whole, it may at first seem maybe unorganized or random, but so is a lot of things in life. You're hit with this, you're hit with that, you're going to respond wisely or foolishly to this or that. With everything we experience. The question for everyone in light of this is, am I living foolishly or wisely? Not did you make a foolish mistake or have you ever been foolish, that's all of us. What matters is what we do going forward. Am I living wisely? Am I seeking to live wisely? Because Solomon plainly points out the dangers, the great dangers of living foolishly. So we need to seek to live wisely and avoid folly in our life under the sun. And the Lord blesses that. That's how he intends for us to live. And if we need more wisdom, we feel like we don't have enough wisdom, what's God say about that? Ask for it. James 1, 5. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. So we're thankful for that wonderful promise.